0: welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and we sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. This episode of Season 3 is brought to you today by United Renewables. Today's very special guest will need no introduction to anyone within the solar industry. Nico Johnson is an 18-year solar veteran. Entrepreneur, CEO, climate communicator, and host of the premier Suncast podcast series. With over 600 episodes of Suncast speaking to the good and the great of the solar industry, Nico has not only documented the history and evolution of the solar revolution, he's influenced his course. Nico has educated a generation, providing industry knowledge, actionable advice, and perhaps most importantly, the inspirational stories of hundreds of individuals who prove a career within renewable energy of impact, meaning, and financial success is possible. A gifted communicator with a bird's eye view of the most important sector in the renewables energy industry, this is a conversation that you won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favor, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Nick, thank you so much for making the massive effort to come the whole way from North Carolina to, to here, to uh, Connecticut, to meet and have this conversation, which has been so so long in the offing. Uh, Delighted that we finally made it happen.
1: Indeed, indeed. We were talking about how to find a nice middle ground and we're close enough to Middletown, Connecticut, that it just made sense. I'm glad that you came across the pond as well.
0: So uh, Nico, you have achieved so much in this industry already. Like eighteen years veteran, starting out uh, with you know Latin America developer, um, marketeer, uh, but you're most famous for uh, host of uh, SunCast, the the, the the podcast series, six hundred plus episodes in um, already done. That's just that's just amazing. And you've also, you're someone who's very kind of, you know, open and very honest about their character, about their interest, their family, faith, all of these, these, like, these issues that make you who you are. But um, rather than trying to kind of wrap all of that up into kind of an introductory question, could you give us a sense of how you see yourself and your role in the industry? Yeah. Uh,
1: self is, is not exactly the thing that I feel I've reflected on probably enough. So it's interesting to think about introducing oneself when we've chosen as a part of our career to introduce others. Have you taken a personality test? So DISC, Enneagram, are you familiar with those personality tests? Yeah. Um, the Gallup Strengths Finder, which is uh, okay, 34 sort of characteristics, aligns, so all of the tests that I've taken they suggest from DISC to Enneagram to StrengthsFinder that at the core, I'm a connector. And when I reflect on my role in the industry, uh, which wasn't something I initially sought to have like a a role, I, 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 didn't intend in starting out as, as someone going into the solar industry that I would have, a role in the industry in any magnanimous way, in any sort of noticeable way. Um, But I I have it at my core and through all these tests found that it's sort of a a leading characteristic, been a a connector. Uh, A friend recently said that he would say conductor. And uh, I find that the chief role of any storyteller is to connect the dots. When I was starting my first solar company and then working for other first-while entrepreneurs, just trying to figure out how the entrepreneur game works. How can we build something that actually makes a dent in the world? How do we build something that genuinely is useful? Uh, I both sought information, and I consider myself an infinite learner, as well as uh, sought to surround myself with others who pursued learning. And so I think I would introduce myself or characterize my role in the industry as uh, a storyteller, an infinite learner, whose job is to connect the dots.
0: Great. And has that evolved over time? I thought, you're talking about it, but this is your current snapshot of where you are now. I think only my ability to enunciate it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I can, I can go deeper if you'd like. So when I was coming up. From grad school, uh, you know, I've <clears throat> I've done a number of podcast interviews where I've had folks ask probing questions and bring me to tears and sort of bring out the the melodramatic stories. Um, I can certainly give you resources for folks that might want that part of Nico. Uh, what I learned in that is that in going away from what was effectively a corporate ladder. Uh, to pursue a role as a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala, I experienced for the first time what it really looks like to have lack, to not aspire to any great career or uh, or, or anything other than daily bread. I was surrounded by poverty. I was surrounded by folks that didn't have uh, running water, or standing electricity, um, and that changed my desire to pursue personal hmm, personal goals that were tied to to the point earlier. Some sense of like greater self aggrandizing like being the CEO of a publicly traded company. All the things that when we go get an MBA, we think, "Oh, this is why I'm doing this," right? Um, and realizing that there is something as infinite a resource as the sun and the wind and the tide that we have as a humanity not harnessed uh, to its capacity and going through grad school seeing entrepreneurship as a clear opportunity and path uh, i was compelled that that um that that pathway of being a self-starter and trying to figure out where I would fit in the world, is where I would start. Uh, that, unfortunately for me, was two years prior to the GFC, and red ran headlong in the global financial crisis and decided, well, I've got an MBA, why don't I go get a job? Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest is history, there's a lot in that history, but I have certainly evolved as a storyteller. I've evolved as a connector, uh, in that I've, been, I've very specifically chosen the narrative I want for my life. And I want that narrative to be one that is most helpful.
0: It's very interesting that you um, describe yourself as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, we can obviously see that that's that is uh, something that's really easy to recognize in uh, these conversations. <laughs> but before uh, you started the podcast, you were in marketing, which is another form of storytelling. Yeah. Um, what's, what's kind of creative itch did you need to scratch yeah. uh, that, that, that dragged you into uh, the, the podcasting business?
1: Yeah, to pull back the veil, as I say in the intro of every podcast, to allow folks to see what it takes to come into this industry. The the, the additional way I will pull back the veil here is that in in doing Good job of prepping for an interview. Any interview, uh, there's a there's a curation process, there's an an investigation research process, and typically one or many planning calls. Some sort of preparation has gone into it. And so, what I will typically say in the prep call is that um, I believe that most people listening to my show, and this is perhaps not true for every show, but I would argue that the billions of views on YouTube they skew towards what I think is the internal yearning to know, am I doing this right? There's this curiosity that we all live in, which is, I don't know if this is the direction I'm supposed to be going or if this is the skill set I'm supposed to be applying or if this is what I was put on this earth for. And we, some of us better than others, are able to, put blinders on and focus, entrepreneurs are particularly good at that at times and sometimes not, um, and go in a specific direction and lead others in that direction. For me, uh, I'd never considered myself a marketer. Even when I took a job as field marketing manager at Trina, which is really the only true marketing role I would say I had, I always considered myself in some way a salesperson. And it was only three or four years ago that I began to understand that sales is marketing. I had not connected the two. I have an MBA. I had 15 years experience selling. I'm, uh, I would say that I had been hired all my life as an exceptionally good door opener. I'm not a very good closer. And when I surrounded myself as a connector with people who are very good closers because I like to match skills, um, I felt this yearning to know, what is it that I'm missing in me that would make me a more well-rounded participant in this, in this game that we're playing, right? This, um, we're, we're in this, this head-on sort of chicken race with, uh, with Destiny. How can any of us individually harness our, total, our abilities and try to understand where we have gaps? um the podcast for me was an opportunity to surround myself with those people and pull back the veil in a very literal and meaningful way i realized as a relatively uh, un-networked poor farm boy from south carolina i didn't come from privilege i didn't have mentors and yet because i'm still fortunate born white, male, American, I was given a lot of opportunities. To quote one of the patrons at the bar I used to bartend, I tended to fall up, right? Um, And it wasn't always the case, but I realized I was surrounded by people who did know that there was a black box and what was inside. They were standing behind the veil. They were privileged. They were the Benjamites, right? Like, how can I? having been given that privilege, create a vehicle
0: that would allow others to see it. 600-odd conversations, yeah. uh, spending 600 hours with, with, with people plus all your preparation, whatever, gives you an incredible overview, and must, must give you like an incredible, incredible amount of um, weaving those threads into kind of macro trends, like it's just an, an ability to understand what the, where the industry is going. What are the most interesting stories that you, you, you feel should be talked about now um, and the most interesting trends that are developing in solar?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting to think about on this side of the microphone. Because um, it's something I really admire, I've shared with you, that I appreciate about your thoughtfulness. Even as a CEO, doing what I perceive is um, an immaculate job on the side, so to speak, with. This, with this conversation, it's very difficult at the at the rate that I'm creating content to internalize it. I guess the drum that I've been beating quite literally since December of 2020 is the hydrogen economy. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pretend to be prescient enough to have seen it coming. It was 2022 before. Hydrogen never really got any kind of impetus that, to speak of, right? Um, I, would, I would argue, or I would say started to get a tailwind in the media. Um, it'll be 2024, 2025 before we really start to see contracts coming to fruition um, in a meaningful sort of push. But I think that the underlying reason why hydrogen is a macro conversation that everybody will continue to talk about, is more fundamentally the, the singular dividing line that creates this us versus them in the renewable sector. And that is, hydrogen doesn't deal with electrons. It deals with molecules. And there's another industry that famously deals with molecules. And hydrogen, for that industry, is a lifeline. And there's no way that the trillions of dollars today, locked up in assets dedicated to molecules, are going to simply just disappear. They're not gonna transfer quietly into renewables either. So they need a vehicle,
0: and that vehicle is hydrogen. I was wondering where you're gonna go with that. Because like, um, I'm very cynical about hydrogen, yeah. really. I think it's, it's something that, you know, as you say, is a lifeline ah. for, for, for another industry that people and people are very keen to be uh, to be extending the life of like if you make if you make engines mm-hmm. either your ip is completely thrown out the door and mm. worthless yep. or you move into something like hydrogen that's right
1: well i don't actually i'm a naysayer uh, as michael liebrecht is on hydrogen for transport i think that oh, okay. it's way down the hydrogen ladder yeah right but for the hard to abate industries mm-hmm. i think hydrogen has a real chance we did a whole series on it you, if you haven't listened to it hopefully you'll listen to it but Um, I don't think that hydrogen, and in particular I'm referring to green hydrogen, but I don't think green hydrogen is the only macro trend uh, of import, but I wanted to use it as a vector to introduce this concept that there is somehow this dialogue of us versus them that is not only corrosive but unnecessary. There's a legacy industry, fossil fuels, that we're not gonna do away with anytime soon because lo and behold, as the New York Times reported very recently, we're using more fossil fuels now, even after the massive introduction of gigawatts and gigawatt hours of solar, wind, hydro storage. Uh, We wouldn't benefit from the textiles, the the shoes I'm walking on. We wouldn't benefit from the transportation that got me here if not for the petro industry, if not for the fossil fuel industry. I am, and I'm not a fossil fuel uh, hawk, right? I'm not trying to suggest that I want the fossil fuel industry around, but there has to be a bridge. And I believe that one of the things that far too many people in the renewables sector uh, stand on as a principle is that there should be no fossil fuel, uh, which fundamentally is divisive. And you can build stories around division it's not particularly growth oriented. Utilities depend on fossil fuel. They don't relish a future where they return to uncertainty, given that their demand is to provide certainty. So we have to embrace that the largest entities in the energy sector have to eventually embrace renewables. Who's going to build the bridges from that sector to I'll say ours. Who is going to stand at the door and welcome them with open arms versus stand at the door and blockade it and say, you're not welcome here. We have uh, one of the other trends. Everyone boo-hoos and and sort of complains about workforce development. Um, I've said from the podcast that I don't think we have a workforce problem. We have thousands of people that want to work in our industry and thousands more lazy folks that want to poach from their competitors because they don't wanna take the time or the money to train properly. They would rather let you train them and come hire them away from you, right? So there's a, there's a handful, I don't know what percentage that invest properly in onboarding. I mean, uh, you know, I quote him quite often, but my friend Matt from New Energy Equity has said that they find that they get just as good a talent at lower costs hiring from outside of the industry and that with rare exception it takes less than 6 months to train them to do their job in the solar industry because it's not rocket science. And it turns out most of the jobs in the oil and gas industry require more science than the solar industry. Right? If we just look at the solar industry as a, as a I mean if you if you're man if you're like in the R&D section of a Trina Solar or a Longi. Okay, right? You may as well be a Dow Chemical, like there's real science. But if you're in the field Piling piles in the ground, there's way less science than putting an oil rig in the middle of the Pacific or in the middle of the the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So I think that a a trend that we're seeing is the need for curating learning pathways. It's something that I've spent the whole last year of my life really deeply thinking about. And there will be companies that stand in that gap And then there, you know, and then, and that will be a leveraging of technology rather than human capital, recruitment, et cetera, to allow folks to find, to to do for themselves what I've been trying to do for the last eight years for them, right? Which is to show them options and be a guide. Yeah. And then I think eventually uh, a trend we are seeing around the world, but not in the United States yet, is grid parity, right? Australia, Chile are great examples of renewables at less than the alternative cost of fossil fuel, right? So we, we have legacy infrastructure here, so I don't, I don't know how long it'll be before we have renewables reach grid parity, but that is, uh, that's the aspirational goal for renewables. It has to be, because when we reach
0: grid parity, then there's no more argument I'm, re- I'm genuinely surprised that renewables hasn't hit grid parity in the US. It is is—it is just a such a, a known mm-hmm. that we have hit grid parity, like from where everywhere. I come from. Everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> what's, what, what's what's going on? Is it the problem, is it that kind of the, is part of the issue that in, in inflation that you're talking about, where people are going in and like stay, stealing people, increasing the, the, the salaries? Yeah, we create our own
1: inflation. But I think that uh, it's not, not to do with, it's not an infrastructure um, issue in the United States, it is, um, It is that the industry has been subsidized for so long and it's subsidized in ways that that, the consumers don't see, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? So they don't perceive that we have achieved grid parity. Um, and then they complain when an alternative form of generation gets subsidies, that it's unfair.
0: Okay, so so yeah. part, of, part of that story is the is <laughs> the, the the subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. It's like yeah. seven trillion dollars, yep. year. That's seven percent of global GDP. Mm. That's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's absurd. So at scale, you know, when we're talking about you know
1: multi megawatt, hundred megawatt, gigawatt scale, anywhere in the anywhere in the world, especially in the United States, solar is below grid parity for sure. Yeah, without question. Otherwise, you wouldn't see Texas a deregulated market. Becoming the the market to be in
0: right? Yeah. Well, how do we it's so a one 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 message that you do? you um, talk about quite a lot is the fact that we need better stories um, How do we get mm. those type of stories out there and, mm. and, and what's in and particular? What do you mean by needing better stories?
1: Yeah? I think that folks don't understand how to tell a story often even though I know how to tell a story. I allow myself to be overly verbose uh, the ability to be concise is a gift. You know, Winston Churchill said I've written a shorter story, but I didn't have the time. Um, I think that folks don't understand the architecture of a story. There is a great example from the uh, Super Bowl 2014. Um, it's it's not often that you see Shakespeare and Budweiser in the same uh, sentence, but there was an article written in HBR in 2014 about uh, an otherwise forgettable super bowl everybody in the american um football scene would remember the uh, seattle seahawks beating the denver broncos um who was the halftime and, show yeah. that was the only exactly most folks <laughs> folks only care about the commercials right so in an otherwise forgettable uh super bowl where you know drake and many other superstars had uh had commercials Budweiser ran a 60 second spot late in the game after the second half, after in the second half and fairly unanimously won best commercial of the year. And it's the study overall uh, that came out in HBR, was done at Johns Hopkins, looked at the art of storytelling as a business strategy, but it looked through the lens of this commercial called Puppy Love which if folks remember was this love affair between a Clydesdale and a dog. And this family comes to adopt the dog and the Clydesdale gets all the other horses surrounded, the dog, and the dog is like uh, paws on the window and the horses stop the car and then the dog and the horse reunited. Like that's the summary of the the drama that unfolded of uh, these two animals becoming friends. And it did, everything well that a story does right in in understanding there's something called the i think it's the fateberg uh pyramid that talks about the architecture of a story as a triangle so if i could give any ceo that's listening um like a quick lesson on storytelling there's always an inciting moment there's a rise in the story um you get to Follow the hero as things look good. And then there's what we call the climax. It's the turning point. Then there's a falling moment. Oh no, what's going to happen? And then there's what's called the denouement uh, or the outcome, right? The resolution of the story. Uh, But so few of our companies think about, companies in our industry, think about telling the narrative of the service, the product, the interaction they have with their end customer or what their, what the outcome or the benefit of their ex- very existence means for the overarching journey of humanity, uh, which we are all in the clean energy in- industry, engaged in the action of saving humanity, right? Like that is the core message. Like we are not doing this, most of us, and this is the fraternity of solar, like we're not most of us doing it to get rich. We're doing it to enrich the world for the next 10 generations so that we don't destroy and leave for them the leftovers of the party. Um, so the, the, if you think about the pyramid, what they found out in this John Hopkins study that HBR did an article on, I'll link to it because folks probably want to read it, uh, is that you know the average Super Bowl commercial is 30 seconds. In that 30 to 60 seconds, and that's about the average attention span. I've already lost most of your viewers. <laughs> Um, in that 30 seconds, you have to capture attention. And if you have been able to follow that pyramid well, you will re- release three homo- hormones cortisol, which is fear, oxytocin, and serotonin. And you are able to bring in these three different physio- physiological reactions that anchor. An experience and what a story does is something that data and analysis could never do so data is compelling but it can't reach to the one place that a story can and that's your heart so uh, you, you I'm mean, actually I, I said serotonin which is the sleeping hormone but <laughs> like it's the one that brings you down but I meant dopamine dopamine yeah okay. it's oxytocin uh, and and dopamine, dopamine. yeah so Cortisol cortisol for stress, yeah, yeah. yeah. But actually, think about that. How many times in your
0: marketing have you intentionally injected stress in your client? I think it's something that there's an awful lot of conversation that goes on about um, Well, we don't want to be stressing people out um, because of it's, this is all so scary and people just, just turn off the whole idea of client. Uh, I completely disagree. I think people need to be stressed unless you're stressed. Hollywood disagrees. Yeah. You you need, you need stress to prompt action. Yes. We're in an emergency. You need to also, if we, if we want to engage the heart, Mm
1: -hmm. that stress moment, that cortisol seeks resolution. Our ability to attach a solution is what Budweiser is banking on when they spend $4 million for 60 seconds at the end of a Super Bowl, right? They're banking on the fact that they don't, they're not thinking about beer when a Clydesdale becomes friends with a dog, but the association now with Budweiser is one that is subconscious. You subconsciously have a higher intonation of Budweiser's mission, which is to bring me joy, right? So if we can tie stories to something that creates friction, creates a cortisol spike, like the death of our planet, I don't, I can't think of another industry that has a better cortisol inducing narrative, right? And yet, we don't see i'm just gonna say good marketing broadly it's a broad brush you and i know brilliant marketers in this industry who are doing great narrative storytelling but it's it's in a it's an edge case yeah i think that if there's one thing that we if that is the one thing that we could be doing better and candidly if i gave the last eight years of suncast over to educating folks about the career opportunity, the next eight years of Suncast, and probably my life are educating folks on how to tell the story right.
0: Mm-hmm. And how has, speaking of you know, the, the US, how has climate become a political issue?
1: You know, something I, I think I realized over the course of the first three, 400 episodes, uh, I actually did zero episodes on policy. Interesting. And I didn't even see it as a blind spot. I had someone else say, what can I listen to to better understand policy? And I had no answer. I like looked through the whole catalog and said, oh my God, I've done zero episodes on policy. Because I didn't understand, I still was ignorant to the deep impact that policy has on the outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. And is that still, the, do you, you kind of hinted that once grid parity is hit, then mm-hmm. policy becomes kind of irrelevant and... and um, Inevitable. Yeah. Inevitable. Um, is that is Do you, do you believe that? Is that well, we're living right? in the IRA era. I mean, that's... <laughs> uh,
1: I think that it requires policy that will endure far, far beyond grid parity mm-hmm. uh, because we... I mean, we have folks right now... Um, we, there is a very strong agenda in Washington. It's um, Campaign 25 or something like that. I can't remember. Opposition 25? 2025? Uh, plan 2025? which is to undo uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, to undo all of the things that were supposedly written into law by the lawmakers that we voted into Congress. Um, so, So I guess the answer would be, even in a world where we are at clear grid parity, we can still have things like trade tariffs here, domestically, that will prevent us from realizing Australia's under a dollar a watt residential, under a dollar a watt residential. They practically give away solar in Australia. They invent, and you know, Bill Nussie, when he came on the show, Freeing Energy, he's a brilliant mind, he said, "We we will see a time in our lifetimes where service providers have to come up with service offerings to build around the virtually free electrons that come from solar, right? I mean, how's the oil industry gonna survive in that world? They can't, Mm -hmm. they can't. So when clean, renewable electricity from multiple sources, not just solar, becomes ubiquitous, not only does it amplify life and allows us to have better technology, it allows us to serve our, our uh citizens in more ways um th- we will see that um there will still be uh, folks who feel marginalized mm-hmm. and as a result pol- politicians who need to uh who need to take into consideration the voices often loud and often corporate corporate driven um that represent those those folks and um i you know there's a there's a deep uh there's a deep gap in uh, you know, sort of an, an area of the United States called Appalachia that used to be predominantly um, coal mining, right? And back to a conversation we had uh, a bit ago. If as an industry, five years ago, we had it, ta- taken, uh, we had realized that Joe Manchin was going to have so much power and that we could create training programs... To help those coal miners transition into new roles, which is actually in fact happening, um, then we have a story to tell, right? My friend Kristen Kirsch at Next Tracker has been a part of creating. Uh, there's a there's a group in the United States that is creating uh, services and training and good marketing around the story that there's a redemptive value to providing new opportunity right, um, that it's not taking anything away. It's, it's, you know, it's the same narrative of like automated factories. They're taking our jobs, right? The robots are coming, they're taking our jobs. That's, that's the same, it's a very similar story to, um, to the reaction to renewables here in the United States. Um, the good news is there's so many jobs to be had.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's interesting if we, uh, we be, the world would be changed if the conversation was about what clean energy, renewable energy gives us rather than what it takes away. because yes. it gives so much more than yeah. it, than it takes away. But that's that's that's, that's aside. Well, one of the um, one of the, kind of the themes that has been coming out is the kind of the building of this community and mm. the building of um and and it's a, there's a slight kind of conflict in there in there with uh, in in kind of my mind where. Um, if we're building a community of uh, people in the in the industry who are who are trying trying to make changes, um, you end up creating one block that is then in opposition to the other block, and the other block will then be could be be resisting and pre- pressing back, and you can end up having um, not the most kind of positive of cycles. Mm. So, and you know, obviously, um, like SunCast, you you talk about a tribe, you talk about solar warriors. Mm. But you also talk about kind of reaching reaching around and putting your arms around around the around the other side But there does there does seem to be you know the potential of of if you're building a community of warriors uh, You know there could be is there is there is there a fight there is there conflict? Yeah, that's that's a that's a
1: really uh, interesting um, observation actually so in the initial stages of creating a product called Suncast I remember an email signature from one of my professors at Berkeley that said, see you next class, Solar Warriors. And I remember thinking, hashtag Solar Warriors is so good. Like, everybody wants to be a part of a tribe. I've had numerous people, uh, predominantly uh, female, say, I don't identify as a warrior. Yet, everyone does look for something to identify with. And in the early days of trying to create something that someone could associate with and feel like that is uh like he's speaking my language, you know, you are going to be divisive. You can't be everything to everybody. Um, so I chose Solar Warriors because I just like the way it sounds. And I have had hundreds of people tell me that they love that the, their solar warrior and that's um, hashtag solar warriors, um, you know, something they consider themselves. But I don't think that I'm going to win any hearts and minds in the oil and gas industry by addressing my audience as solar warriors, right? I don't, uh, I don't imagine that lots of folks have listened to that and thought, "Oh, he's talking to me," right? If they aren't already inside our industry, and that isn't a, in a way, it's something I have to reflect on. But it's a remnant of what the industry, what the podcast was. It was the first. Real podcast in the solar industry that was for us by us about what this industry is doing, right? I welcome any viewer Who wants to help me come up with a broader? focus or Hashtag Uh, I have if if one if folks have listened the outro always says solar warriors and climate champions and I borrowed that from my friend Lee who? um, Is has a a podcast called climate champions and I thought that's a really good one, and um, you know, all great art is theft. So I'm going to imitate uh, Lee and use Climate Champions, uh, and so I, th- I think that there is again, it still is pandering to our industry. It's not like some oil and gas executive is going to feel like they're a climate champion by listening to SunCast. Um, I-, I don't know what the right vernacular is, but I received the challenge to be more inclusive.
0: Okay. We're speaking here really about the you know the culture of not just kind of suncast and suncast listeners but of the the kind of the industry as a whole. Yeah. Um and I think we have kind of mentioned that it is more inclusive than mm. energy 1.0 mm. or you know um but how would you how would you define the culture of the of of, of the solar industry energy energy 2.0 you call it. Mm. The culture of energy 2.0 is uh, i'll
1: tell you, I think that energy 2.0 is to the modern aspiring professional what tech was ten years ago.
0: Mm.
1: I think that it is it, it is both now and aspires to be a place where you can you can for the next 30 years be challenged creatively, without end. Mm. There are complex problems to solve there, this is chemistry and math and science at a deep level. But it is, um, and this is true in the oil and gas sector as well, it is full of people who are genuinely curious about progress. And they like to have fun. And I think that every, you know, I meet a lot of folks who have taken jobs in the solar industry over higher paying jobs in tech and there, there are two things they re, they realize that while they don't have maybe meal plans and you know personal chefs coming into the office, um, there is this more collegial environment that is less, and it's not always true, but less of a um, of a rat race. And then, um, and then more importantly, um, they really do feel that they are given the opportunity to contribute to and leave a
0: legacy. So you, the origin story was uh, you were working in Latin America, mm-hmm. and um, you were looking at, the, at you know, that solar boom, mm. uh, you know 15 odd years ago, solar uh-huh. solar boom. Um, that's something that we won't that a lot of our listeners or most majority of our listeners are in Europe, will not be familiar with. Sure. So could you tell us a little bit about the solar boom and maybe what, what lessons uh, can, can be mm-hmm. learned from it? Well, um, you mean specifically how Latin
1: America became the fastest growing solar market in the world, um, circa 2012 to 2014. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Latin America and across the developing nation, uh, the developing world, most islands, uh, they're they're operated by predominantly state-owned utilities. Uh, They Generate most of their electricity from coal, and then they don't have access to or the kind of wealth to procure without some other sort of you know, instrument of debt uh, the kinds of um, modern gas plants that we're all familiar with. Nor do they have liquid natural gas, LNG terminals to supply fuel for those plants. But what they do have in abundance is the leftovers of our crude, uh, which what what we call bunker fuel. So throughout Latin America from the 80s, off-grid solar has been very profitable and and prolific because of the number of communities that are frankly off the grid. There is, I think 20% of Colombia still in what they call the Zona No no Interconectada, the the disconnected zone. It's an entire region of Colombia that has no electricity connected to the central grid and they are entirely powered by by diesel generators. So when you've got entire civilizations powered off of diesel and um, you've got at, a, at an international level, circa 2008, this buzz around sustainability and reduction of our carbon footprint, naturally World Bank, International Monetary Fund, et cetera, began looking at debt instruments that will help wean these countries off of this incredibly toxic and incredibly high cost fuel source called bunker. None more than Central America, where I think 80% of the peaker plants were, 100% of the peaker plants in Guatemala were bunker fuel. um, They all began to look at the cost of oil peaking at $120 a barrel. Um, Realizing that, I mean, the spot market in Panama in 2013 got to uh, $21 a megawatt hour. Yeah. Now, this is 2010. The solar boom in Europe began in 2004. Okay. It had begun to crash in Spain, Portugal, Portugal Germany was winding down, fit tariff, feed in tariff. What are all those entrepreneurs, where do they have roots? Because of the Second World War, they all have roots in Latin America. In Argentina, the Italians. In Chile, in Brazil, the Portuguese and Spaniards. Um, So we saw a mass flight of predominantly Spanish but then Portuguese and German solar entrepreneurs to Latin America to say, you know, they're like, they're like, Moses coming out with the tablets. Like, we've got the answer to your problems. Um, and, so, and within a very short period of time, they were able to, uh, and they moved in force, like moved passports, like living in Chile, living in Brazil, living in Panama full time, Mexico. They were able to influence the uh, local governments to start considering uh, not, not only the ability for net metering, but the ability for, you know, um, Feeding electricity into the grid of the nodes and you know, kind of how we know that the renewable energy systems in more of the modern countries were beginning to think about uh, stabilizing the grid. This, this technology was imported in IP through these people who had lost all of their jobs. They'd lost, their, they'd lost an industry. And, uh, and then at the same time where the industry is going down in Europe, you've got the Chinese, well, I'll do it this way, you've got the Chinese solar industry ramping up solar panels are coming from over when i got in the solar industry in 2006 i was buying panels at five dollars a watt when i got started when i started my job at trina solar and started going to latin america we were selling panels at a dollar a watt that we had a contract with solar city at a dollar a watt and within a year of that contract with solar city that they bought in a forward price for a year guaranteed um, the panel prices went down to 65 cents right that dramatic of a reduction in that period of time. So I was at Trina from 2011 to 2014 and then, or 13 and then I was at Connergy 13 to 15. And at the time that that transition from Trina where I was selling a lot in Latin America to Conergy, where we were trying to develop solar, um, the oil market cratered, mm-hmm. right? But not before Chile in particular adopted a wholesale, and it's dollar denominated, adopted a wholesale uh, distributed generation strategy for wind and solar and Really at a government level committed and so did Brazil following them and so did Guatemala and Honduras and Panama and El Salvador and I watched gigawatts of solar be built in rural like very remote areas to offset the tremendously high cost of Bunker fuel because when you are when you're avoided cost your alternative is $21 $21 a megawatt hour. And we're at that time bidding into RFPs in Europe, in Asia and Australia at $13 a megawatt hour. Everyone saw like, okay, the natural progression here is we're gonna get down below $10 a megawatt hour. And if oil could just even stabilize around $60, $70 a barrel, we're gold, right? Like $80 a barrel, we're still gonna see wholesale pricing at, we're going to see merchant pricing at the, at the $80 a megawatt lowest, right? And I remember we did an energy study in uh, Connergy and um, we had like, we had very comp- comprehensive models on what the Panama market was going to do. And Daniel Ades, who ran Kawat and um, was the own the, the, the company, the PE company that owned Connergy, he came to me and he said, this is summer 2014, 2020, summer 2015. He said, this looks compelling, but you're asking me to bet on oil not going to $50 a barrel. And I'm not in the oil industry. And I'm also not a magician. And I don't have a crystal ball. And I'm not willing to take a 25 year contract, bet that oil will never go back to $50 a barrel. And that guy is a genius. He's a veritable genius, because I could tell you other stories. He's like one of the smartest people ever met. And I walked away feeling disillusioned. But then two, three months later, the bottom fell out of the market. And oil stayed at below fifty dollars for more than a year. And we would have lost our trousers, right? And and lots of my friends lost their jobs and lost They're like, those projects stalled. Some of them never got built. We just watched the Ciro project, 117 megawatts just get turned on in Puerto Rico that started getting developed in 2011, right? That's what happens when oil has that kind of fluctuation. So when it went back down to below $50 a barrel, all those people fled the country and went back to the other productive markets, right? Back to Australia, back to Europe, which was starting to grow again in 2014, back to the United States, which was definitely booming, thanks to the um, ARRA and other um, other legislation, other policy from the Obama administration, All
0: right? But we had we had no profitable legislation at that time. Um, and you mentioned the kind of Moses down from the mountain with the with, with the tablets. Um, <laughs> is there something that you can see coming out of the industry now that really excites you, that, that you think uh, maybe, maybe, or has the potential to be transformational? or is there something else within the industry that you think we should be talking about more that's going under the radar? Uh, I I think it's trope to say that batteries are the future,
1: but like I remember James Altucher saying eight years ago, like the next 50 years is gonna be decided by chemistry. It's gonna be, we're gonna, it's a boring industry and batteries uh, are a, they're a simple technology but there's nothing simple about deploying them from one vehicle to another, Porsche and Mercedes are having problems balancing the load, right? Like this battery that was supposed to look like this battery is not the same, but when we get the chemistry right on batteries, both short duration energy or power and long duration energy, uh, we are, it will only be when we get, battery storage, right? That we get anything that approximates a decarbonized grid uh, because renewables are intermittent as the, uh, as the other side, right? As the right, uh, the Republicans like to point out that because it's intermittent, it's not reliable. Well, that's not true. Uh, and thankfully, we are, uh, we are benefiting from both renewables and fossil industry investing heavily in chemistry in batteries and I see a lot of, uh, so I, I just had, uh, an interview that suggests that battery technology is going to in similar to you and I watched like the commoditization of solar panels mm-hmm. and it happened at a pace that, that no one on the outside, I was at Trina at the time, like I saw it coming, but, um, and I don't, I don't feel like particularly pressing and I was inside the machine and I was saying internally this is a commodity folks and everybody like I'm, I'm on the marketing team and they're like,
0: <laughs>
1: right? Like, Hey, wake up battery folks. Cause it's a commodity in a very short time. Like it was suggested that it's 18 months from now, right? We're nearing the end of 23 by 25 batteries are commodity. So how do, how does one as a developer differentiate themselves as a manufacturer differentiate themselves? One answer is software. Another answer is services.
0: So, um, yeah, a lot of conversation in the ESG world today is about, um, purpose and finding, finding Mm. your, finding your purpose and honing in, and that's, and that that'll give you, give you motivation. Um, but you've said in the past, you found that in this industry passion is overrated. Mm. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. What what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's not enough to be passionate. The, there's a lot of sort of guru sensationalism about find your passion. What would you do if you never, if you didn't have to make a dime? Like, what would you still, uh, what would you do if you, even if you weren't paid for it? Uh, that, I, a lot of the things I see are passion can be very productive and you can be very passionate about gardening, but you're not likely to save the world in gardening. And there are very, few who would probably say that they're passionate about collecting rubbish. But in fact, it is a life-saving activity. It prevents us from drowning in our own rubbish, right? So there are things that are fundamental about contributing to society that, um, that aren't passion driven, they're skills driven. And the industry has a lot to give and a lot to offer. And I find that a lot of folks come to me and others that um, they find in, in the public domain and they say, I- I'm really passionate about changing my job. And they've spent zero time thinking about their transferable skills, right? They, it's not that they don't have them. They just, uh, they, they, aren't, they aren't thinking yet critically about how, what they've been able to accomplish as an accountant somewhere or as a marketer somewhere. Is directly transferable to the industry asking the wrong question and their motivation can be passion driven but they won't get a job by communicating their passion Uh, perhaps the best advice that I have been given on getting a job by and large is by a guest early on John Shamanis I this is part of the thing that like is somewhat freakish like I think his episode was 64 <laughs> I don't know. yeah like I, I, I don't know if that's right but John was early on in the podcast and he said that some of the best advice he ever got and so I pass it along uh third hand is you can when seeking a new role a new job you can change your role or your industry but never the same both at the same time and what does he mean by that you can move from a healthcare to solar great what were you doing in healthcare marketing cool become be a marketer in solar you can move from marketing to finance but don't leave healthcare keep one of the legs of the stool steady the thing that you know how to do right it's either healthcare where you've created domain expertise or it's marketing where you've created domain expertise have something that's portable Don't try to jump to solar and be in finance where you have neither of the two
0: foundational skills that you can ask for money to be paid to do. So yeah, we normally um, wrap up by asking for a piece of advice, but I think you have just amazingly done that. So uh, I'll ask you a, a slightly different question. Uh, for anyone who is thinking about making, just as as a wrap up, uh, making that shift, making that change um, into renewables, um, could you what would the pitch be for um, for solar? Like, why is solar going to be really a really exciting place to be spending in the next twenty years of your career? Yeah,
1: I. So again, I'm a conduit, right? I I channel others and I was really struggling with this concept because all around us, you see this push for a broadening of focus, right? Of, Of dialogue and that broadening is folks saying, why are we talking about solar? Let's talk about, and I've said it several times in this conversation, clean energy. And I thought, well, I am too niched down. I had a mentor. I'll, I'll speak to two mentors. One was my podcast mentor, John Dumas. He famously says, you got to go, you got to niche down, right? Uh, an inch wide and a mile deep. And when I told him that I was going to build a solar podcast on uh, you know, Latin American solar, he said, Nico, I said an inch wide, not a millimeter. Um, <laughs> And, and I began to fear that I was too narrow. You know, lots of folks will say like, oh, Suncast is the biggest podcast in solar. Well, it's the big like that's a small pond. Um, I started d- desiring to say, well, how can I expand my audience? I, I'm gonna, instead of solar warriors, climate champions, instead of the voice of the solar revolution, which is what my website said from the very beginning, uh, the, uh, a, a guiding voice in the clean energy revolution. And I used Clean Energy Revolution as a hashtag for two years. And then uh, I was admonished uh, heavily by, and, and thankfully, by my friend Danny Kennedy, who runs New Energy Nexus, and he said, Nico, don't you realize that the world is transitioning to renewables? And by 2050, the largest generation resource on the planet will be solar. And by 2050, if my my calculations are right, you will have been talking about solar for 35 years. What a legacy you can leave to be the voice of the solar revolution. (laughs) So at that time I said, okay, maybe I'll embrace being the voice of the solar revolution and be okay with the fact that I'll have friends who are the voice of the wind revolution and friends who are voice of, right? Um, You have to pick something, and for me, I very luckily fell into what will become the largest, uh, the largest and fastest horse on the track, right? And the one that is, is, is taking all bets right now.
0: Okay, Nico, thank you so much. That was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. Hope that you enjoyed it learned something. Uh, If you did enjoy it please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.